In the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. When I was a kid, one of my favorite movies was the old Haley Mills movie, Pollyanna, about a girl who brings joy to a small town with her persistent positive outlook in the face of lots of hardships. I'm not exactly sure why I loved this movie so much. Definitely part of it was its girly Edwardian aesthetic. The frilly dresses, the china teacups, and the pastel colored town. But I think I also loved the strength of this little girl. Of course, as I watched it, I was a little girl myself. So it was very cool to see how Pollyanna could get people to listen to her. Not just other kids, but all of the adults in this town. One of the characters who she transforms, especially, is the preacher. A sweaty old guy played by Carl Malden, who preaches long, hot sermons on summer Sundays from a towering pulpit, a lot like this one. The refrain played for comedic effect in the sermon Pollyanna has to sit through is, death comes unexpectedly. Now that I am a preacher myself, I have a new perspective on this story. When I was a little girl, it was clear, Pollyanna is right and the preacher is wrong. Life is beautiful and death holds no sway. But the thing is, what Malden's character is preaching to the town is true. Death does come unexpectedly. Our fears and anxieties about it are valid. And isn't it the role of a preacher to tell the truth? to not let all of you in the pews hide from the hard realities of life or pretend they don't exist. Isn't it true that Pollyanna has come to mean someone who doesn't really acknowledge the hardness of life? Someone who is blissfully optimistic in a way that is dismissive. And so the film in my older age, I realize, is really about the push and pull between optimism and pessimism, between fatalism and hope. In fact, I looked up the opposite of fatalist in the dictionary, and the first suggestion is the word Pollyanna. Death comes unexpectedly, yes, for everyone, and also, as Pollyanna says, if you look for the bad in mankind expecting to find it, you surely will. Both things are true. Our stories today from First Kings about a new king, Solomon, and from the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus gives the people lots of little stories about what the kingdom of God is like, are similarly interested in this push and pull between optimism and pessimism, 
and specifically how God is involved. Will God give us what we need? Will God bring out the good in us? Or does death just come unexpectedly? So what's the point? Solomon is the new king chosen by God. And even though he says he's a little child, he has been ruling the kingdom with his father, David, for years. God tells Solomon that he may ask God for anything he wants. And Solomon replies, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this? Your great people. God's response to Solomon's prayer is to give Solomon exactly what he asks for, because he has not asked for anything for himself. Indeed, Solomon has the humility to compare himself to an infant who knows nothing. Imagine a king making that comparison even though clearly he has already been leading. Solomon's understanding of leadership is that he needs the wisdom of God to help discern the needs of the people God has given him to lead, and God gives it to him. This is how the grace of God works, scripture shows us. If you have a heart and head for the people, God will give you the grace you need to help them. God gives us hearts and heads the better to show compassion to one another, and so God's grace covers the earth. For three weeks now, our gospel lessons have been Jesus' parables of the kingdom. For us, the idea of the kingdom of God is a spiritual one. We don't live in the kind of kingdom that Jesus' followers knew. But the first people who heard these parables lived under Roman rule. They knew the physical reality of a kingdom, and most of them experienced it as oppressive. Maybe it's because we live in a democracy that is founded on principles of freedom, Freedom, by the way, is another antonym for fatalism. And we live in a democracy founded on religious tolerance. So maybe it's because of that that we have grown accustomed to thinking of the kingdom of heaven as something that affects our spiritual lives or something that will affect our spiritual lives after we leave this material life. But Jesus was teaching about much more than what would happen to us after death comes unexpectedly. Jesus was talking about life right now, life right here in this world, the life that Pollyanna wanted to make better for the adults she saw were unhappy. As Paul says in the letter to the Romans, neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So when Jesus tells his parables of the kingdom of heaven, he is not getting us ready for life in paradise. He is trying to get us to think about right now. Jesus cared for the people right where they were. He healed them and fed them and taught them. He gathered the children to himself, not because kids are cute, but because they had so little power in their society. Jesus engaged in theological discussion, sometimes with scribes and Pharisees, but much more often with women and fishermen, with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus cared for the lives of the people, and so he cared that they understood that even as they suffered under the oppression of Roman rule, they were important citizens in the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of heaven if it's right here and right now? What is the kingdom of God if it's somewhere in between Pollyanna's rosy, defiant optimism and the preacher's doom and gloom? Today's gospel lesson gives us five quick images of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field. So we know that the kingdom of heaven is worth obtaining and protecting by buying that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price, so beautiful that the pearl broker gives all that he has to get it. So the kingdom of heaven is worth giving up a lot to have. The kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea that catches all manner of fish and is full to overflowing when it's pulled up. So we know that the kingdom of heaven is for everyone. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Three measures is a lot of flour. And so that we know that the kingdom of heaven is amazingly abundant and nourishing. And just as the flower never knows the water without the yeast, we have never known a time outside of God's grace. But the fifth image Jesus uses, the one he opens with, is a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like the tiny mustard seed that grows into a plant so large that birds may nest in it. And we know in this image that the kingdom of God can grow from something very small. The first people who heard these parables of the kingdom were the descendants of Solomon's people. Indeed, Jesus was a descendant of Solomon. They knew these things already, but Jesus told them again, using accessible everyday images to show the people this astonishing love of God. Jesus taught us that it is worthy of protection and more valuable than any other possession we might have. He taught us that new life is available to all of us. In the parable of the woman baker, he taught us that the spirit of God has been there all along and yearns for us to join the new life we are offered. And he teaches us that this all can start from something very small.
I've been thinking about that tiny, tiny mustard seed. Later, Jesus uses the image of a mustard seed again to illustrate our faith. If our faith is even as small as that tiny seed, it can grow. A tiny seed has a lot of power. Living in the world today brings with it a lot of valid fears and anxieties that can make it feel far from the kingdom of God. These fears and anxieties may not be the same for each of us. I'm sure each one of you brings a different one into this room today. Some of you may have personal fear of failure, of loss. Some of you may have larger existential anxieties, AI or climate change. And there are some universal injustices we all live with, with various effects on each of us, racism, patriarchy. To borrow a favorite phrase of millennials, of which I am one, we have to deal with all the things. It can be overwhelming. It can cause us to lose hope or to feel fatalistic. Death comes unexpectedly after all. Specifically lately, probably because of the wildfire smoke and the very hot days in New York City, and the fact that I am a mother of two little children, it is climate change that has been freaking me out the most. It feels scary and hopeless and it makes me feel bad like I haven't been paying enough attention already, and I don't really know what to do now. As a preacher, it could be easy to get up here and be like Carl Malden in Pollyanna, both accusatory of you and fatalistic. And in a way, that could be truth-telling. But I read an article in the New Statesman a few weeks ago that changed my perspective by the journalist and thinker Rebecca Solnit, who has made a career for herself studying what I would call the ethics of hope. Her point with regards to climate change is that feeling hopeless is a privilege we cannot afford. She says, when you take on hope, you take on its opposites and opponents, despair, defeatism, cynicism, and pessimism. And she says, also I would argue you take on another opposite, optimism. What all these enemies of hope have in common is confidence about what is going to happen a false certainty that excuses inaction. Whether you feel assured that everything is going to hell or will all turn out fine, either way, you are not impelled to act. All these postures undermine participation in political life in ordinary times and in the climate movement in this extraordinary time. They are generally both wrong in their analysis and damaging in their consequences. See, both sides of Pollyanna are flawed, and hope is what lies in between. In between optimism and pessimism lies hope. 
Solnit talks about it as our participation in what she calls political life. But what Jesus talks about is our participation in the kingdom of God, the here and now. God gives us an answer that is different from Pollyanna's sometimes willful obtuseness. And God gives us an answer that does defy the unexpected death the dour preacher promises. God gives us an answer through hope and connection that we are beholden to each other and that in our connection to each other, we have the power to change the world around us now, to bring about the kingdom of God, that vision of a beloved community now. What is true is that we don't need to be Pollyanna to do it, to have hope. We need only have a speck of hope the size of a mustard seed and the wisdom of Solomon to realize we aren't able to grow it all by ourselves. With God's grace, it will grow. Amen.